Welcome back to The Spark Show. I'm your host, Daniel Robertson, hitting in a three-hole for us this week. Dave Magadan, hitting coach of the Colorado Rockies, former 16-year big leaguer with the Marlins, the Mariners, the Cubs, Astros, Padres, A's. A lot of experience, 16 more years as a hitting coach, World Series champ with the Boston Red Sox in 2007. Numerous big leaguers he's played with, numerous big leaguers that he's coached, successful, And I look forward to having him on the show to talk about a solid hitting approach, ways to help win, him being a double shy of the cycle, and his World Series experience both as a player, but watching the game, and as a hitting coach sitting in the dugout for the Boston Red Sox. I hope you guys tune in. I hope something that he says sparks your interest. He was an on-base machine. He sits second on the all-time list with the New York Mets at a 391 clip. So listen in, and hopefully he could spark something for you on the offensive side. And most of all, he could spark your work ethic or your confidence, taking it to whatever workout that you're doing today. Thank you guys for coming in. Tons of knowledge. Let's get right into it. Thank you for coming on today, Mag. It's uh, absolutely my pleasure to be on with you, Dr. Uh, you know, we go back a long way, and it's uh, anything I can do to help get some uh, information out there to the fans. It's uh, whatever I can do. We got to do it different ways nowadays, so let's get going. Let's just get started with kind of, you know, you played 16 years in the big leagues. I'm I'm going to butcher the time that you've been as a coach, so I'll let you fill that in because I don't know the exact date when it started. I just know the 16 years that you played because it was really fun to go back and watch you as a player. Well, uh, yeah, you're right. I I played 16 years in the big leagues. Uh, I coached from uh, 2003 until last year. This, I think this was going to be my uh, 32nd season in, in the big leagues and the uh, 16th as a coach, as a major league coach. I did coach one year in the minor leagues as the uh, hitting coordinator with the San Diego Padres. Uh, and I, I really enjoyed that job. Uh, it was the first time I was at home in the summer, and you know, since I was in college. Uh, so it, it was something that I really enjoyed and being able to work with all the guys in the organization. And uh, so it was, a, it was a good entree for me to get into coaching. Uh, but After one year doing that, I was asked to be the major league hitting coach with the same team I just got done playing with two years before. So that was that was a little bit strange. Right. Baseball has a funny way of bringing things full circle and making things seem weird, but also creating magnificent stories at the same time. And I think that's what you know. I'm drawn to you. The stories that you were to you were able to share with me my rookie year and really changing the course of my career. I was a journeyman. Um, I never really got a crack at the major leagues and I got my first crack with you guys. And I just thought how special it was to be able to learn from you and all the information you were able to share, as well as teach me how to watch some of the guys that you were working with. Well, well, thank you. I, you know, I I always took pride uh, because I I was never a superstar as a player. I had, you know, maybe three or four years where I was able to play every day. I made my niche as being a guy that can hit off the bench and maybe play twice a week and still be productive. 
so I always had, uh, uh, you know, a, a good relationship with those guys that weren't going to be in there every day. Obviously, I've got to coach everybody on the team, and I, but I've always taken the attack that I'm only as good a hitting coach as the 25th guy on the roster, and it's my job to make everybody better. And whether you're the superstar, David Ortiz, or you know Prince Fielder, or Adrian Beltre, or Manny Ramirez, I still got to work with with all the guys and make them the best that they can be. And I, I felt like the hitting coaches that I had that made an impact on me were the ones that took the time to try and make me better, as well as the best guy on on, on whatever team I was playing on. And uh, so that's that's always the uh, the angle I took with players. I, I wanted to try and make everybody better, didn't matter who it was, uh, and I and I tried to make time for everybody. Yeah, I mean, and that's rare, you know, especially in today's game. I think it's very easy to hook your hook your name on the trailer of the next superstar and hopefully ride the wave into your own personal success, but. That's why, again, having you on here and being able to spread that knowledge, not only to young kids, but maybe the next wave of hitting coaches or young hitting coaches that want to get into the game. But we could go down that route, but I want to get into your playing days because when I was, when I was playing for you, I feel the stories that you had, I didn't really have any context. But to go back and really dive in and, and sit on YouTube for hours and find whatever I could, whether it was an interview on Kilner's Corner, uh, describing your four for four day in Wrigley, and showing some highlights. And I just think that's special because that is the one thing that I think when you start talking about, you know, old school baseball, it's not really old school. It's played a little more efficient, I think, in my selfish personal opinion of the game. It's more efficient, it's cleaner, there's a lot more pride. Um, but seeing the video of it, you know, obviously you didn't play, it wasn't grainy to you. It wasn't, it wasn't black and white. It was just like it is today. It's normal. And so watching you play, you had extremely high on base percentage. And was that something that you always took pride in or was, who did you model your game after when you were a kid growing up watching? I don't know if I ever really modeled it after somebody, but I know my dad, who was the one that would take me and my brother out to, to take batting practice, even in the off season when everybody else was playing football and basketball, we were, we were still going out there at least once a week taking BP. And my father always instilled in me, get a good pitch to hit, swing at strikes. You're not going to be a good hitter if you swing at balls. Uh, I remember being a guy that hit the ball to all fields because it was just my father, myself, and my brother. So my brother would shag when I was hitting. Mm -hmm. So I liked to try and make him mad by hitting the ball all over the field. You know, when he was hitting, <laughs> he was the right-handed hitter. So he was yank pulling everything because my dad was laying him in there. I wanted to take him off a little bit. So I would hit balls to left, right, make him run around and field all the balls. So uh, I think those two ingredients right there were the big reason why I always felt like swinging the strikes was really important. Uh, but I never, you know, I think when I would get into trouble, if I went up there thinking about a walk or trying to work a walk, I think that's, you know, that's a, you know, that's a very passive uh, way to go up to the plate and hit. 
And when I would do that, I would find myself falling into that. And I had to really uh, make a conscious effort to go up there and still be aggressive and still look for good pitches to hit, but be aggressive in my zone. And so I, I, it just kind of, it evolved into me being the type of hitter I was, you know, I was a high on base guy, didn't hit for power, uh, hit for good average. Uh, and, uh, you know, that was kind of my niche, you know, it, it got me a lot of, uh, you know, big league time and I didn't, wasn't an everyday player for most of my career, but I did get a lot of at bats and, and it was, it was my niche, but it was my niche only because that's where I, I grew up and it, it, it eventually evolved into what it became as a big league player. Yeah, you kept polishing it kind of day in and day out sort of thing. Because there was a video that popped up where you're facing Goose Gossage in a game again at Wrigley. And I think it might have been a little wet, but he grooves you two through fastballs down the middle. They're a little up, but, you know, as we both know, the strike zone can change at any moment. Yeah. They look like strikes, but you know what? You took them so calm. They were probably top of the zone, what more today would be called, you know, high spin rate up in the zone. And you took them so pat. Not, I don't even want to use the word passive because it wasn't passive. It was as if when his arm went back, you were checked off. You were like, it's going to be a ball. I'm not even, I'm not even on it. And then I think he grooves you one down the middle and then he misses again. And then you get to three, one, and then you bang, you bang a, a line drive right through the middle. Krispy Kreme guy or uh, Carter comes in to score, but it's that at bat when I get to see is I can put into context how it was that you played. And I thought, and I thought that that was awesome. Well, I, I prided myself like we talked about it, knowing the strike zone, knowing the lanes of the strike zone, not, not only, you know, in, middle, away, but even up, down. And I distinctly remember that at bat because I, I think that was my only at bat ever against Goose. Uh, oh, at uh, bat a thousand against Goose. I yeah. hope he never sees this video. Yeah, yeah well, <laughs> I, I see him occasionally, and, and he, do, he obviously doesn't remember my bat against him, but I've <laughs> talked to him about that at bat. It had two distinctions. It was my only at bat against Goose, and it was the first night game ever played at Wrigley. Was it really? Yeah, because the night before, the Phillies were playing, I believe, a Thursday night game, and they got rained out. They were going to be the first night game. So we ended up going, on the, going into Chicago. I think it was a Friday night or whatever the first game of the series was. And we had a night game. So we ended up being the first night game ever at Wrigley. So those are the two things I re why I remember that at bat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, oh, that's uh, I love that. Yeah. So, you know, Goose, back then, no advanced scouting reports, right? All you had was word of mouth from guys on the bench. So never faced Goose before, knew that he threw hard, knew he could spray it around the zone a little bit. So I probably talked to one of the guys on the bench, and I distinctly remember, hey, you got to get him down because his fastball up in the zone, even though he doesn't throw as hard as he used to, it still has good velocity. It can get on you. It gets off your barrel. Get the ball down. And that's probably why I took those fastballs in the yeah. upper part of the zone. Yeah, absolutely. Get him down I can handle them. And, and, but I, it's, it's funny you bring that about it. I don't remember, uh, you know, a ton of at-bats from the big leagues, but that's one, I, especially just one at-bat against a guy. So. 
Well, it's that birthday intuition. I mean, us being born yeah, on the same day, absolutely. just certain we're, times we're apart. Right there with each other. I knew which at bat you were going to remember and which you weren't. That's <laughs> just that's just around that wavelength. Absolutely. And, and I and I just it led me down the road. And of course, something I didn't know. I knew you played for the Mets. I knew what teams you played for. But I think I never put two and two together that, holy, holy cow, Mags has got a ring with the Mets when they won it in 86. And, you know, for the youngsters out there, if you get a chance to go watch it, watch it. In the most dramatic World Series, probably in the history of World Series, outside of the one that you were a part of where it was involved with uh, – it was the 13 series against the Cardinals where we had balls getting thrown down the line, ending the game. Yeah, I wasn't a part of that one, though. That wasn't – it was – oh, you were seven. You were in seven. I was seven. 07. Yeah. You were 07. 13, you were 07. I, it was my first year in Texas. Right. So, it, I think outside of maybe that one is arguably the greatest and most back-and-forth World Series that I think anybody can imagine, other than the, the one against Texas in Cardinals, where legitimately Texas was one pitch away twice. Yeah, one strike but, away. Yeah, one strike away twice. Yeah. And <clears throat> on that team, you have, you know, you got David Cohn, you got Daryl Strawberry, although you and Daryl Strawberry were similar in age. He was only like a year or two older than you, right? So you were pretty yeah. you were pretty similar in age, but you had Gary Carter, you had George Foster. Was there one of those players that kind of helped you not get over that big league hump, but like when I was with the Rangers, Giovanni Soto, you know, he just put his arm around me and took me under his wing and told me how I was supposed to be a pro. And everywhere I went, he was always on me. Was there someone, one of those guys, or was it someone else on the roster, maybe Howard Johnson or one of those guys that took you under? Um, yeah. I mean, there were a couple influential guys. It, it was tough back then, you know, it wasn't like it is now where you're a rookie and, you know, somebody takes you under the wing, they buy you clothes, they take you out to dinner. They, you know, I was the only first year player on that. My first full season in the big leagues, I was the only rookie on that team because obviously they had just uh, won a world championship the year before. So there weren't a lot of changes other than letting Ray Knight sign as a free agent. Mm -hmm. So it was really a job that was be to be won between me and Howard Johnson, that 87 spring training to, for third base. So I was coming off 86 where I was a call up. That's a whole nother story. I got a ring, but we didn't get a ring till like 10 years later. Uh, they didn't give everybody rings, even though we got called up and played uh, in 86. We weren't eligible for the playoffs because uh, I wasn't there before September 1st. So I got called mm -hmm. up September 7th, I believe. So we didn't get rings. There was four of us that didn't get rings. And then finally, 10 years later, they relented and allowed us to get rings. But we had to pay for whatever the cost difference was from 86 to 96. <laughs> so Randy Myers, uh, one of the na nasty boys, he was one of those guys that didn't get a ring. In 96, he was making a, a lot of money, and he flipped the bill for everybody's rings. And oh, that's awesome. Paid the difference for it. Yeah, it was fantastic. So that's kind of a, a side note to what happened in 86. So 87, really the only rookie on the team that year uh, to start the year. Uh, so, but 
you know, in 86, when I first got called up, Lee Mazzilli, i never forget, I was, I got through the first day and I, I went out at, on the field at Chase Stadium and we had a doubleheader that day against the Padres and I was just kind of geeked out there looking at the stadium, seeing, you know, the triple deck and, you know, and, and just, he, he could see that I was a little, little overwhelmed. Uh, so he put his arm around me. He goes, listen, you see those bases? You see that plate? You see the fence? It's all the same distances that you played all throughout your life, all throughout your career in the pro ball. It's still the same. It's still 90 feet. The pitcher's 60 feet, six inches. You know, the fence is pr pretty much the same. The only thing that changes is everything outside the lines. Concentrate on what happens inside the lines and you're going to be all right. And that was Lee Mazzilli. So uh, I took that through my whole career, especially my first year in the big leagues, my first at bat in the big leagues, just, to just remember that and replay it over and over in my mind, it, it, it calmed me down. That's awesome. And, and I think in a new wave of the game where you talk about mindfulness and meditation and all those things, they say it's the new wave. And I'm just a firm believer that mindfulness and meditation has been going on for years just the really good players the ones that played baseball for a long time were the only ones doing it that was that's the difference i think because well, we didn't have you know we didn't have the sports psychologist yeah 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 you did and you don't have the apps and you don't have no yeah, definitely you know. definitely it's a tr it's a trial by fire because it's funny it's funny that you say that you didn't have people to kind of take you in like it is now and I think I would also be interested to know when did you see that shift? Because I think as a kid, when you, when I watched guys playing baseball, you know, I think you hit a home run, you hit a home run um, against the Cubs and it was in the kill. It was in a Kilner corner interview. And he asked you how, you know, you, you ran it threw you a fastball in and you hit a home or what were you looking to do? And you were like, I was just looking to get a ground ball to second and get the guy over. And it was running in on my hands and I just dropped a barrel and it went. And so when I hear those things, I just try to hit a ground ball to second. When I played with the angels, I watched Albert getting shift runner at second and he rolls a 108 hopper. That would have been a routine ground out to the second baseman, but he just shot it over there to move the guy over or to get a hit, whatever it was. But then he gets an RBI from it. And I'm thinking the way the game is played nowadays, when did you see it start to shift? Because you were played in arguably one of the most competitive eras, and now you're coaching in this era. Did you see a distinct shift between the times? Yeah, I don't know if it was one, one moment, but I think it right. just gradually evolved. Uh, you know, as guys uh, started committing more towards – preparing for the season year round. I think when I first got to the big leagues, guys were starting to make good money, but probably the previous 10 years, guys were still getting jobs in the off season to try and support their families, trying to make some money. When I got to the big leagues, I think the minimum salary was like 40, 42, five or 42,000. Uh, so it, it, we were just maybe 10 years removed from the minimum salary being 18,000 a year. 
So there were guys still working year round. Now, you know, as I got to the big leagues and started, you know, creating my career in, in, in the big leagues, guys started working out more, weightlifting started coming into, uh, into favor before weightlifting was considered like taboo for baseball. Guys started lifting more in the off season, getting bigger, stronger, using all kinds of things to try and get bigger and stronger. Uh, so it became, it became something that changed the way the game was looked at and how you're going to get paid. Strikeouts started going up, home runs started going up, uh, batting averages started going down. Uh, and guys realized if they hit the ball out of the park, they were going to get paid. And, uh, so I think the training, the, the philosophical stuff mechanically started changing, uh, as guys started to get started getting paid more and more for hitting the ball out of the park. Uh, so I think it, it gradually evolved to the point where it is now where, you know, guys are routinely striking out 200 times and, and hitting for low averages and, and uh, low on base and, and high slugging. And do you think those, you know, I, you, we've had some great conversations. I know what war is. I know all those. I know, I know most of the analytics that I'm trying to learn. But with without any discrepancy or anything like that, do you really feel like that's the best approach to win a ball game? Uh, no, I mean I, I still think the good teams, the good offensive teams, are the ones that do the little things uh, to help help your team score runs. I think. Uh, the extent of moving runners over with outs, runners from second to third, runners from first to second with outs, uh, doing well with runner on third less than two outs. To me, those are all stats that are um, are usually pretty good tell of, of how good an offense is, a well-rounded offense, because I think it's not necessarily how many runs you score overall for the season or how, how many runs you score on average for the season because you can score 18 and then get shut out and you're averaging nine runs a game but you only right. won you know one out of those two games so I think it's how creative you can be offensively to score runs that keep you from the shutouts the one or the two run games that are usually directly correlated to losing games when you score two or less runs, three or less runs, four or less runs. So the more you can get your offense generated to the point where you, you've got a really good chance of scoring four or five runs every game, I think that gets directly, it directly uh, has an impact on how many wins and losses you have. So in order to do that, especially nowadays with all the good pitching there is, uh, and all the information that pitchers have and pitching coaches have to try and get hitters out and scouting reports to help you put defenders in the right spot to get these hitters out. I think it's even more uh, valuable for guys to be able to score or teams to be able to score runs in different ways, Absolutely. And whether that's moving runners, having good at bats, taxing pitchers to get into bullpens, uh, Working a walk when, you know, you can lead off an inning with a walk. Uh, speed, taking the extra base. Uh, being able to lay down a bump when it, when it makes sense. Uh, all those things are, are ingredients to having a good offense, I think. 
absolutely. Like there's, there's not one way to play the game. There's multiple ways to play the game, but it all, and I'm just such a, I learned from you guys. And one thing that I took away when I went to my next places where I played was surely you may not win every game and surely maybe statistically you can't win them all, but you can sure try to win tonight. And if I'm always trying to win tonight, I think in the long run, I'll be able to do the things that I needed to do. And I felt the pillar that it had in Texas where it had the eight ways to have a ranger at bat. I had never seen that in a professional organization before. I mean, surely I was only with the Padres, but I've also gone to several locker rooms and walked around stadiums. And then even after my rookie year, I, I don't think I've ever seen another expectation anywhere else that I have gone. I've seen ways to do it, but not a bought in. If you want to win baseball games as an offense, you got to have, you got to have these things. You got to be able to perform these things because this is what it means to be a big leaguer. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, you can, you can break it down into 20 different categories but basically, and this is kind of the way I went about it when I was playing, uh, if I felt like I swing, if I swung at the pitches that I wanted to swing at and I took the pitches I didn't want to swing at, I was probably going to have a pretty good at bat. And it's as simple as that. And I had Mark Grace as my assistant when I was with the Diamondbacks. And I asked him one day, Gracie, what's, what's your definition of a, of a, a successful at bat? He goes, swing at the strikes and take the balls. And it's as simple as that. And when you do that, you're going to hit the ball harder. You're going to walk. You know, the walk is just going to happen. It's not something you go up there trying to, trying to take from the pitcher. It's accepting the walk from the pitcher. It's not swinging at what he wants you to chase and swing out of the strike zone on. It's swinging at the pitches that you want to swing at. It's swinging at the pitches in the zone that you're looking to swing at. And, and that's how we try and break it down with the, uh, with the Rockies, you know. We have two strike zones. We have the strike zone of pitches that the pitcher's trying to get you to swing at on the edge of the zone and out. And then the pitches in from both corners, up, down, and both sides, two to three inches in that heart of the plate. That's where we're looking to do damage. So we're doing damage in the heart of the plate, and we're taking the peripheral stuff, the stuff that the pitcher wants you to chase. And the, the, the exit velo on those pitches is, you know, 60, 70 miles per hour. The exit velo on those pitches in the heart of the plate are 95 plus, 100 plus, and those are the pitches you're doing damage on. Those are the balls that with as hard as pitchers are throwing nowadays and as hard as the baseballs are. Oof. And you know what? When you're you, – I mean, you were a guy that, that high on base guy, you swung at strikes. When you're laser focused on that heart of the plate in from both corners and you're focused on that, as soon as you see a pitch that's out of that, that almost that tunnel that you're looking at, it's almost a, you take it as a ball right out of hand mm -hmm. and you don't even offer at it. Mm -hmm. But when you get something in that tube, that's what Manny Ramirez used to call it, the tube. I get a pitch in that tube, I don't miss it. 
but if, if it's an out, it's going to be a hard out. But when you're, when your vision at the plate is two or three inches outside the strike zone to the middle of the strike zone, when your window is that big, you're going to miss pitches in the heart of the zone and you're going to chase pitches out of the zone when your window is that big. When yeah, my window is small, sense. less chance of chasing. That makes Windows perfect big, sense. I'm going to chase. Yeah, the bat only fits through, you know, if – when I think of that, and I think I thought of it when I, when I played for you, my bat is only so thick. So in that area, if I'm running my bat through that area, there ain't, there ain't too good of a chance that I, you're going to miss my barrel because right. the surface area isn't wide enough for my bat to miss anything in there. And I've, you know, I think I looked back at fan graphs when, when I was done and I saw, I think I, I was 97 point something percent contact rate on a pitch that I swung at in the zone. So for me, you ain't missing that. But just like you said, now, if you make that box bigger, that bat now has a lot of surface area to cover and just physically with physics, numbers are going to go down. It's pretty, you're going to swing and miss. It's, 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 extremely simple and I think that's the importance of today's time is finding a way to get people to understand how simple this game needs to be because I think that's what drives me nuts sometimes is people try to make it out that they have all the answers but it's not that simple because my trap my shoulder whatever getting in my hip all those things are irrelevant if I don't know what I'm looking for if I don't know what part of the ball I'm trying to hit if I don't know what I'm attacking well, because it's and you played for a long time. It's very easy. Well, I shouldn't say it's easy. It, it's a it's a little bit easier going to the cage and working on something mechanical that is gonna a player is going to buy in if it feels good right away. The buy in's there. It feels better. Ball's coming off the bat better. So it's always easier to make mechanical adjustments with a player, especially as a hitting coach, because it's, it's tangible, right? It's something that they can feel right away. But when the problem is chasing out of the zone, there's, you're very limited as to what you can do to help that player achieve that, right? Uh, it's hard to work on that. It's something that evolves over a long period of time. Uh, it, it, it's something that you're not going to get immediate results. Uh, say a pitcher that's working on throwing more strikes, you can make a mechanical with, uh, adjustment with a pitcher, and now that ball's coming out of his hand better and it's, his, his movement is more in the zone, it's very tough with a hitter. So it's always – hitters are always uh, ready to buy into a mechanical adjustment because you can go immediately to the cage and work on it. And it's like, yeah, yeah, it feels good. And, you know, do flips. Yeah, it feels good. When you're working on swinging and more strikes, and that that's – I mean, let's face it. A lot of times when guys are struggling, they hitting coaches and players alike try and always make it be about something mechanical. But when you look at the pitches that they're swinging at when they're struggling, they're usually pitches that are out of the strike zone or on the edge of the strike zone that they're not going to put in play hard anyway. Now, 
There could be mechanical things that are causing you to swing at those pitches. Maybe your swing got a little bit long and you got to make decisions sooner and, and all those things. But more often than not, the problem when guys are struggling is usually they're chasing pitches out of the zone. I, I couldn't – it takes me right back to the start of my career, two for 20. I never forget it because I try to tell kids – it's not really about getting to the big leagues and being good. It's about making your first adjustment when you get there. And I remember being two for 20 and you and I going to the cage. And I felt like from that moment on, I hit off the tee, um, took a couple flips till I was good enough not to blow an oblique out. And then you would sit down and every single pitch that you would throw, whether it was off speed, curveball, fastball, it had a situation tied to it and a count tied to it. And that was in May, or that was late April, early May, two for 20, and then not playing, or playing sporadically. I think I hit 340 or something like that from that time all the way until August. In August, I think I hit almost 400 with a 500 OBP. It was like 495 or something like that. And I vividly remember being in Houston end of August, maybe beginning of September. And I was facing somebody that was having a good year. And I remember they threw a breaking ball and it was a really good breaking ball. And I think I was so locked in that I might even had actually spit on it. I think I just went, I was out of the hand and I just went like, I'm not even flinching at that. And I remember taking a step out thinking, Holy cow, you know, I don't know if I've ever been this locked in. And I vividly remember that, that exact explanation. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's kind of, it's a cornerstone of what I teach. And, and, you know, we can sit here and talk mechanics all day long and everybody's got, there's a lot of, di especially nowadays, there's a lot of different opinions on, on what guys need to do at the dish mechanically and all that. But, I talk a lot about pitch selection. I talk about, uh, you know, being able to see spin and, and have an idea of what you're looking for, the area that you're looking for it in. Uh, those are all things that, to me, uh, you know, like I, I think about Tony Gwynn, who I played with for three years in San Diego. Uh, he wasn't a guy that walked a lot. Uh, he wasn't, he wasn't a guy that had a high on base. He, his on base was high just because he hit for a high average. But, he, you know, his, his walk total for the year was usually, you know, anywhere from 30 to 50 walks a year. With 20 but what out. he did do was he swung at strikes. And if the first pitch was what he was looking for, he didn't miss it. He had such great barrel control where if he got a pitch that was in that heart of the plate that I talked about earlier, he hit it somewhere hard. And that's why he didn't walk. Uh, so this plate, to me, plate discipline does not directly uh, impact your walk total. I think it makes you a better player. And it, it's, it's something that uh, eventually it can maybe turn into more walks. But what it's doing is when you have plate discipline, you know what you're looking for. You only swing at the pitches that you're looking for, and the discipline is laying off the other pitches that are outside the zone. And that's 
I, I distinctly remember doing that drill with you where I sat down and we did at bats and I spun some, I threw you change ups and all that. Because I think when you were two for 20 to start your uh, first call up, it, there's always the, well, I just talked about mechanic. I got I to gotta ch change mechanic, my mechanics. I got to do something different. I'm two for 20. I need hits, blah, blah, blah. And what I tried to do in doing that was I wanted to get you off that you had to make a mechanical adjustment. And no, you just need to, your reactions need to be better. Your pitch selection needs to be better. You need to be ready for those pitches in the heart of the plate. When you get them, you don't miss them. And that drill is, is designed to get you off your mechanics to where now you have to pick the baseball up out of my hand and your focus now is on the baseball and not what you're doing mechanically. So. And that stuck with me. I mean, I can't even now when I try to talk to kids, that's, it's all about the ball. If you don't know what I'm completely believed, I think in, to a fault maybe, but if you don't know what the ball's doing or you don't know what the ball looks like and you're trying before you trying to swing, the chances of you having success aren't going to, be very high and I and I I had to go through that humbling experience to be able to simplify it yeah because I think what happens too is I see it with with guys that are power hitters um, I, it happened to uh, David Ortiz when I had him he, you know my first year in, in Boston he hit like 336 with like 36 homers and 130 RBIs had a great year but the year before, in 2005, he hit 54 homers. So he went from 54 homers to 36 homers. But his year was better. He hit from 40 points higher. Mm -hmm. He drove in more runs. His run production was better. You know, higher walk total, less strikeout. You know, everything was better except the home runs. So the next year, he started trying to – manufacture more power because he wanted to get back to that 54 homer guy and it was a constant struggle between he and I because he was trying to do more to generate power which was making him late making him loopy he, now he's missing pitches that he should be hitting he's chasing pitches because his swing is longer he's got to make earlier decisions so now he's going to chase more so that was a constant it, and it's a struggle really uh, most of the time with power hitters because they want to see balls going over the fence. And so they start trying to manufacture. It happened with Nolan last year. He went his first 60 at bats. He didn't hit a home run. So you could see that he was, when he was in a good count, I got to do more. And he, he's a simple guy, man. His, his mechanics are very simple, but you very can simple. see that when he was getting into good counts, his swing got bigger. It was the effort level went up instead of just, no, I'm just going to stay with the same stuff. You know, I just need to get a ball in the air and barrel it. It's going to go over the fence. So once he saw a ball go over the fence, I think he hit nine home runs in that next like 15 games. So, but it was him backing, you know, instead of putting his foot on the accelerator, which was what he was doing for those first 60 at bats he had to kind of ease off a little bit, slow everything down. Let me just maximize my hard contact, 
when I'm doing that, the ball's going to go over the fence. So that's awesome. I mean, it's, I'm not going to say it's accurate because you've spent, you've seen way more at bats than I have. And I'm just, I'm just learning. I'm just trying to, to pick brains all the time from, you know, there's been so many great people to play this game and I can't, are there staff, our staff that we had that one year was, I don't think that was very fair. The accumulation of skilled men at their position from, from Gary Pettis being a base running outfield guy, Wash being the infield guy that he is, you turning yourself into the hitting coach that you've become all kept it simple. It was different tasks, but all of you kept it so simple. And then we obviously had Bobby Jones who kept it light. Kept it real. <laughs> he kept it real. I never forget uh, we were playing the Angels, and it was a day game, and somebody threw me a heater up, and I chased it, fouled it back, and I could hear him, can't hit that pitch, kid. And I'm just, yeah. <laughs> out of all the things that are going on, that's for the, the, that's the, the 25th, 100th time of the season, he said that. <laughs> yes. Tells everybody and anybody. Um, let's go back to let's go back to that day in uh, in Wrigley when you needed a double for the cycle, but you but you had a you had a triple instead. That ball was hit uh, well. well. No, well, uh, mm. the story goes. Let's see. Uh, so I was always playing behind Keith Hernandez, mm -hmm. waiting my turn, and then we we got rid of Keith and here I thought I was going to get my chance and we traded for Mike Marshall. So he became the first baseman. I was relegated back to being a utility guy and all that. And I, I was livid about that because, you know, I felt like I deserved a chance to play and all that. So, so Mike Marshall, who, who was a good player, uh, but he was hurt a lot. So Sure enough, we traded for him, and he was the everyday guy. And then he was kind of in and out of the lineup, and he had back issues and all that. So that game at Wrigley was my first start in a while, and he had been struggling. He was hitting like 230. So I was like, here's my chance. So we actually had a doubleheader that day. And uh, uh, first game of the doubleheader, I go four for four. And my last at bat, I needed a double for the cycle. And as slow as I was, I already got the triple out of the way, which was a miracle in itself. That was a good swing, though. That was a really good swing. So, uh, so Doug Desenzo, who was an outfielder, we yeah. were blowing out the Cubs that day, the first game of the doubleheader. So he's he comes in to to pick up the pitchers. He's a, you know he would always come in as a position player. So who's that's who I was hitting against that last at bat. Oh, so left on left. So left on left, I hit a ball. I hit a line drive in between first and second. The grass at Wrigley's like this long, you know. Uh huh. The middle of the summer, uh, I think Andre Dawson was playing right field. So I I kind of hooked it in the hole between first and second, and it first bounce it took was maybe fifteen feet in the outfield, mm -hmm. and it checked up because the grass was so high. Yeah. So it. You know, normally it's a routine single, no way I'm going double. But as a, as the a ball, you know, I'm running the first, uh, you know, it's a single. Probably wasn't hustling. <laughs> so I make the turn, and Andre, who's got bad knees, he played me kind of towards uh, right center anyway. He didn't play me to the line. He had a long way to go. So I didn't go to second. 
If I'd have gone to second, no doubt I hit for the cycle. Oh, no. Yeah, Tara, I believe me. There's two regrets I have. There's that one, because for a guy like me who couldn't run to hit for the cycle, <laughs> that's right up there with Molina, Benji Molina. Hit for yes. the <laughs> uh, but there was that, and at Wrigley was the other one. I was playing first. I think it was 88 or 89. First and second, nobody out. Um, who was it? Zimmer. Don Zimmer was the manager for the uh, Cubs. I believe he was. He always did stuff kind of, uh, you know, kind of off the, uh, the the books, you know, you mm -hmm. stuff you wouldn't normally do. He sends the runners first and second on a 3-1 count. Uh, I think it was Gracie. Lines the ball right to me at first. The guys were running. So one out, I touch, uh, I touch uh, first for the second out. The guy that was on second was already rounding third on his way to home. I could have jogged over there, touched the bag at second, unassisted triple play. There's only been like two or three in the history of baseball. <laughs> I would have been the third one, unassisted. Actually, I would have been the second one because the third one Happened, the next yeah. was later after me. So that those are my two regrets, both of them at Wrigley Field. Those are pretty. Hey, those are those regrets aren't bad though. You know what I mean? Of all the things that we regret about not swinging at a certain pitch or not yeah, doing a yeah, certain yeah. thing, those yeah. are two pretty good regrets to live with. Yeah, I, I would say positive regrets. So yeah, it's very true. Negative ones. That's very true. Where was your favorite place to play? Um, to play. You know, actually, I loved – nobody liked hitting at Shea Stadium. I loved hitting at Shea Stadium. You, you never played there, so you, you wouldn't know, but I, I loved the feeling there. I saw the ball really well. And the other one was the Astrodome. Uh, really? Nobody, everybody hated the Astrodome but because it was so big. I didn't care because mm -hmm. I wasn't a home run guy anyway, but I saw the ball good there. I loved the conditions in there. It was always perfect. You know, I, yeah. I, I never minded playing in domes. So, you know, you knew you were going to, you, you knew you were going to play every day. There was not going to be a chance of a rain out. You know, mm -hmm. you always get that 50 50 feeling going to the park where you think, oh, we're probably not going to play. Especially in Seattle. So. Especially in Seattle. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. No, always no. And then so th those are your two favorite places to play. Now, fast forward, now your next 16 years, you got to watch the league evolve. So now as a coach, where's your favorite place to go now? I would imagine the new, because I played at the new, um, what is it, Citibank, I believe the new one City, is? City Field. Up? City Field is now the new, is, it's not new Shea, but City. Yeah, 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 it's a new Met Stadium. That was, um, I played there. That's probably not your favorite, but. Yeah. Um, you know, one, one place I failed to mention as a player that I loved playing in was Dodger Stadium. And. That, I say that because that's how I feel as a coach. Even though it's tough as a hitting coach going in there, facing that staff, you know, when, you know, scoring three, four, five runs is like, you know, the greatest thing. Uh, I love the atmosphere at Dodger Stadium. Uh, it always feels like an event. It, it feels like I always kind of look around. I'm like, this is a big league. It's always a big crowd. There's always celebrities in the stands. Uh, it just always felt like a, like 
like you were in the big leagues. And that's why I felt when I went there as a player playing there, even, even back then their pitching was really good. It was always going to be tough going in there, but always felt good at the plate there. It just had, a, it, it just had a lot of energy. Yeah. You can't get away from it. That's how, that's how it felt for me in Texas. I mean, when you got the, when you got George Bush Jr., sitting in the on deck circle when you got, you know, country stars coming in and I'm putting my bat weight on and I got people that I've never thought I'd ever meet. Hey kid, how you doing? Yeah. Throw it yeah, throws you, it throws, it throws you off. It doesn't. And, and I think I was very spoiled with Texas being my first kind of experience because like you said, I played in, in Dodger stadium one time and it was a spring training game, but it was the last spring training game. It was like our freeway series. Oh, when you were the Angels. Yeah, when I was the very next year when I went to the Angels. But we only played one game. But. Yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing, especially now that they're, they're really good. Yeah. So every, every game's sold out and high energy. Yeah. So after, gosh, so six, you play 16 years, you win a World Series. Whether you, whether you only got called up or not, you still won it because you were still a part of the, the game clinching when you guys clinched the, the division, right? Yeah. So you have that. You, you, you did everything. You almost hit 300. I mean, I think you were like right at like 285 or 290, something like that. Mm -hmm. It's a couple extra base hits a week. <laughs> you hit 300. So now you spend another 16 more years why why do you want to be why did you want to stay in the game did you think you were going to stay in it for 16 more years or was there just just that love inside of you for baseball that really hasn't left I think that's probably probably the main thing I think my last probably three or four years in the big leagues I was almost considered like an extra coach uh I wasn't playing a ton uh, and had really good relationships with the players, had a really good relationship with Bochi. Uh, so I felt always like I was a, a, an extra coach. Uh, so they, you know, Kevin Towers, who was a general manager of the Padres my last year there as a player, he asked me if I want to do the hitting coordinator thing. I, I hadn't thought of it. I thought I was just going to shut it down and not play and just figure something out later. Always thought I would coach in some capacity. Um, so I thought about it and took it and he promised me, he said, if you do a good job, you're going to be our major league hitting coach sooner than you think. So I did it and I guess I did a good job and they offered me the big league job the next year, the next off season. So I think I, like many times in my life, uh, I think I just try and do things the right way, you know, whether it's as a player, treating people with respect, no matter who it was, clubbies and trainers and managers and coaches. And, and I think when you get a good rep reputation for treating people with respect and, and doing things the right way, I think things tend to fall into place for you a little bit better. Um, so that's why I looked at it. I, you know, I did the hitting coordinator job. I had no idea how to do it. Listen to the Bill Brick, who's our, field coordinator at the time and Ty Waller who was our farm director and they kind of taught me the ropes and tried to do stuff the right way tried to have good relationships with the players and 
and treat them with respect no matter who they were. Uh, so I think it, it, it worked out and ended up getting the big league job. And I, I tried to do the same thing in the big leagues, work mm-hmm. hard, give the players what they need. Uh, not only what they need, what I feel like they need, uh, do a good job for my manager, uh, take their, uh, take that responsibility away from the manager. Cause he's got so much that, you know, all managers got have so much that they got to worry about. So if I can, handle the hitters and and he can feel like he's got confidence in me to handle that and that he doesn't need to be a part of that um, I think I've done my job so that's a great explanation that's a great explanation let's switch gears a little bit I'm going to give you I'm going to give you some single words call it a little baseballism activity I'm going to give you one word we'll do it five times and you just tell me the first thing that comes to your mind Okay. Does it have to be one word? No, no, no. I'm I'm gonna give you one word, and then whatever happens, free range. All right. Patience. Uh, Swinging at strikes. That's the first thing that comes to my mind. Uh, A lot of times, people put patience into uh, like walking, stuff like that. Uh, Patience to me is just swinging at strikes, swinging at what you're looking for. I like it. What about you touched on it just a couple seconds ago? Respect. Uh, doesn't matter who it is, man. It could be the, the bottom clubby on the totem pole and the, the clubhouse, the guy that does the laundry, or it could be the owner of the team. I think you treat everybody with respect, the respect that you would want to be treated as if you were doing the same job. What about learning? You never stop learning. Uh, here I am 57 years old. I've been in the game a long time. I'm still learning things from players, um, whether it's a vocabulary or it's a different way to say something or maybe a drill. Uh, you know, I, I continue to see things, not only guys on that, that I have as players, but I see, uh, guys on other teams doing, and if they make sense to me, I incorporate into what my little toolboxes and so you never stop learning you know just to piggyback off that do you feel like when you were playing and now do you feel like much has changed actually I know the scenery has changed I know the players have gotten better bigger faster leaner there's mobility there's you know there's uh, mindfulness training there's so many different things that have been integrated into the game but if we turn the layers back. Do you really feel like the game has changed from the player's perspective that much of when you see success from when you played versus when you see success from the guys that play now? I think the absolutes of hitting, the mechanics, the basic absolutes, the bottom line things you have to do as a hitter have not changed. Um, I think there's, I think there's probably there's probably drills now that the guys have uh, have have done. I would say over the last five years that weren't around 25 years ago, uh, but they they're basically working on things to get you to those absolutes that we all agree with as uh, you know hitting coaches that have been around for a long time, players that have been around for a long time, uh, but. Uh, 
I mean, I see guys pulling stuff out that, that we did when, when we were in the minor leagues, you know, uh, the drill with, uh, uh, I, I think Robinson Cano made it famous because they did a video on him doing it on the field where he put a screen mm -hmm. uh, on the edge of home plate and he was doing flips with the screen there. Mm -hmm. So I remember doing that in the minor leagues. Uh, we did it in the cage. And we got right. up against the net of the cage and mm -hmm. did flips that way to keep you from casting and getting outside the ball. Mm -hmm. So it, it's, you know, it's funny. There's some things that have evolved and there's some things that, you know, guys just revert back to something that maybe a hitting coach they have did when he was playing and they tried and they like it and it gives them that feeling that they want. So. Yeah, that's true. Let's go with simple repeatable to me simple is repeatable uh i had a i had a hitter one time when i got a new job with a team i won't say who it is but i called him up in the off season we were getting to know each other and one of the staple questions i, I would ask guys is you know what what are your checkpoints what are your keys in your swing what do you do well you know what are the things you get away from when you're struggling and and literally, when I was writing it down, there was 14 things that he mentioned in that conversation as checkpoints, keys. So that, to me, is not simple. That, to me, is a lot of thinking going on, a lot of stuff that he's got running through his mind that splits his focus between his mechanics and picking up the baseball. And so to me, simple means easy to repeat. And when you can repeat good things, good things happen more often. Yeah, I think Story said it the other day, and, and I'm sure it's something, I don't know if he learned from you, but probably I wouldn't be surprised if he didn't, where he talked about a good swing is never rushed. Right. I, just, I just think that makes a lot of sense. Last one, and I, I think uh, I enjoy this one the most because, you know, hopefully as a coach, when I'm able to experience one, I can have the same joy in my facial expressions because when I ask Story about playoffs to see his face change, when I ask Johnny Gomes about World Series and you see his face change, I have to ask, World Series. Uh, World Series. Um, joy. Um, it's what we all play for. Uh, I know sometimes you can get sidetracked by the money and the playing time and the slumps and the, but the bottom line, and I think that's what's so good about our guys in Colorado is they, they get it. They get that the reason we play the game is to get to the World Series. So uh, when you have somebody like Daniel Murphy on your team who's been there and understands, uh, you know, understands the – he has been to it, right? I'm saying he has. I know he had that yeah. one playoff where he hit a ton of home runs. Yeah, with the Mets. It was when, yeah. they, when they lost to the Royals. Yeah, yeah, and that's yeah. And then the next year exactly. he went to the Nets. Exactly, yes. When they, when they took out – or when they told Verlander he was done and then he didn't want to be done and then he went out and was done. Right, right. <laughs> so, it, it, to me, it's just it's, – it's culmination of all the hard work uh, and that, that's what we work for. Um, you know, when I won it with the, uh, with the Red Sox in 07, I uh, certainly did a lot more. I think 
uh, labor to earn that ring because I was a coach from day one. The '86 <laughs> Mets, I was a you know a call up that had you know <laughs> 20 plate appearances. So uh, it was it was a much different feeling uh, being able to celebrate. I wasn't able to celebrate in '86. I wasn't there when they were celebrating. So it's just that release of energy of realizing I remember sitting in the dugout next to our trainer, Paul Assard, and we were really nervous. Even when we were three games to none up on the Rockies. And I think that at the time the score of the game was four to two for game four, mm-hmm. but I was still nervous, you know, well, you never know. Yeah. You never know. And I started thinking about the year before I got let go from the Padres, didn't know what I was going to do get the job with the Red Sox, go to spring training, nervous, all this stuff, you know, great team that I'm, I'm being a part of now. And here I am, at, you know, last out of the world series and how far I came from a year before. And, uh, you know, and it, all those, those memories start flooding your mind. And, and uh, it, it was, it was joy. I mean, I can't, I can't imagine, you know, to put, to put it in perspective for the kids that watch this, to understand that you get called up in September and that's your, that's your World Series window and then you can't play. And then you didn't, you didn't go to another one your, the rest of your career. No, no, that's, you know, I get called up in 86 and, you know, there was a talk of the Mets being a dynasty most of the players were young. Pitching staff was young. Uh, win the World Series in 86. It's like, oh, we're going to rattle off like, you know, three or four during this this time frame. And, you know, 87, you know, Dwight gets uh, the, the drug uh, problems and gets suspended. Bunch of guys got hurt. Had a pretty good year, but you know, back then it was only the the winner of the division went to the playoffs. There was mm-hmm. no wild card or anything. Uh, eighty eight, we go back to the playoffs. That's the year the Dodgers. Uh, you know, Kirk Gibson hits a home run against the uh, against the A's to win it. They beat us in the playoffs. We were up three. We were up at the time two games to one. Uh, playing at home. Uh, four four to two lead or three to one lead. Docs on the mound, two outs in the ninth. We win. We go up three to one with another game. Uh, let's see, we go up three to one, uh, four, and I think we play. I'm not sure what the. I'm, I'm, it's a little foggy, mm-hmm. but anyway, we would have gone up three games to one. Mm-hmm. Davey Johnson goes out there to take Dwight out of the game because he just walked uh, Mike Davis, put the tying run at the plate. Doc talks him out of it. He leaves Doc in the game. Mike Sosha hits a two-run homer to tie the game, mm. three to three. We ended up losing that game. So instead of going up three to one, now we're down two. Uh, we're tied two, 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 two. And then uh, I believe they won the next game to go up three to two. We won game six. Three three, and then they won Game Seven. They blew us out. So, and that's so, and that's the perspective. That like this isn't you know this isn't just open the book. They were talking sixteen years 
and then a, a couple years into coaching, you go back to one, something that you didn't get to experience your entire playing career. And I, and I just think sometimes kids lose track of time because yeah. it, does, it doesn't take much time. If, if I want to find, you know, for me, if I want to find out things on Dave Magadan, I could Google it and bam, it's here. It's now. I can have whatever information I can. But to earn something in this world, it takes a lot of time. And sometimes it takes years. And yeah, I, think that's in, I think that's important for the next generation to kind of to fill in, which, you know, if there's kids out there listening that want to be big leaguers, what would you tell them? How would you tell them what can they do to become a big leaguer? Um, there's, there's many things that you need to do. I think probably number one is, is it takes a lot of hard work. It takes a lot of uh, mental prep to accept because, you know, it's according to where you're at. If, if the kid's already in pro ball, uh, he's already experienced – the, the grind of a 140-game season. If he's a high school kid, he's only probably played 30 games in a season. College, it played 50 or 60. So there's a special kind of mental um, toughness that you have to achieve to be able to grind through 140 games in the minor leagues, 162 in the big leagues. And the, the, the roller coaster ride of being an everyday player at those levels and understanding that you have to play today, good, bad, or indifferent, turn the page, play the next game, turn the page, play the next game. You cannot be thinking too far back, too far forward. You got to always live in the moment uh, and play for the moment and then turn the page. And then next day is almost like a new season. Turn the page. Next day, new season. Turn the page. And if you could achieve that, as well as doing everything else that you have to do, hard work, preparation, uh, God-given talent, um, the ability to make adjustments, all those things are, are ingredients to being a really good major league player. But to me, the hardest hurdle is is getting through and the mental acuity that it takes to, to get through a season. There you have it, kids. You want to be a big leaguer? Write it down. <laughs> yeah, we can, you and I, we can sit here and talk all day. And I just, I appreciate you for taking the time to come on here and, and help some kid that's going to benefit from this. Some young kid or some young, some young woman that has a, career in sports or career in baseball that wants to achieve the things she has and mags. I can't, I can't thank you enough for coming on today. DR, you're always one of my favorites, man. You know, that share birth, same birthday. Uh, so it's, uh, it's always nice to spend some time with you and talk some baseball. Mm -hmm.